0: was trying to, I was scheduled to sing, and I was in North Carolina, I was trying to figure out what I was going to sing, I was sitting there at a Christian bookstore called Golians. it's a wonderful little store there, uh, it's very conservative minded, very similar to how we are, the Rochester's was what was playing over the speakers, and so if that gives you any idea, and uh, I was sitting over there reading all these CDs, trying to put them in the CD player, trying to find a song, I finally happened up on one, boy it was a good song. I called Amy and I said, Amy, listen to this song. Man, what a powerful song. I started to see if it was within my range, if I could sing it or if it was too low or too high for me. I said, it's right in my range. Man, this is a good song. And Amy goes, Sable sings it. And I said, Sable! Right there in the store, I said, stinking Sable singing these songs. No, I'm proud of Sable. She's really worked at getting her voice uh, quality, taking voice lessons, she sounds wonderful, but more importantly, she has a heart to sing that song, and uh, it's never been about the singer at this church, it's always been about the the one being sung about, and so I'm thankful for Sable's heart in that matter. Can I ask you to do me a favor, this has nothing to do with the sermon tonight, during special music, and we also have to be very careful of this during like an operatory, um, it's very tempting to totally focus on something besides what's going on. It's kind of like your part that's not involved in the service. It's not congregational singing, so you're not uh, joined in too much. But uh, it's very easy to get distracted and and maybe talk to your neighbor or uh, do something in your purse or out to your side or check the score of the ball game, Brother Sean O'Dell. But I'm just kidding, man. You're the only one with the iPad. I had to pick on you. Um, but it's very tempting. But what I've seen, and I've seen this recently, is you never know who's sitting behind you. And someone who's never been to our church could possibly be sitting a row behind you, and you're talking or you're doing something that's distracting from the worship time there as that singer singing, trying to call their mind to remind them of how good our God is. And it's just very worrisome that we could be a distraction for somebody's first ever impression at our church. My daddy taught me a long time ago, you never get a second chance at a first impression. And so maybe not only for your own sake would it be good for you to tune in to the person singing, trying to recall to your mind the goodness of God, but also for those around you, it's also very beneficial. I always got called down in class for talking. And uh, I would whisper to my neighbor, and she always acted like I was a distraction to what she was trying to do. Well, the truth is I was being a distraction to what she was trying to do. And make sure you're not the rowdy kid uh, in class when we're having our service time, please. So take your Bibles to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter number 4. Very excited to preach this sermon to you. Uh, It's been on my heart for a while now, and uh, I... I, uh, have really had some time to look over it, and I believe that if you'll focus in tonight, uh, the Bible will have something for you, very applicable to Christians who may have, for some reason or another, just started feeling that church has become a little stale. Um, That's not necessarily an indictment of your faith, and it's not an indictment of you as a Christian, but... There is a time sometimes where we come to church and it almost seems like we're coming out of a, a habit. I call it ritualistic ruin, where we just come and it's a, a check mark of our, for our social calendar and we're not truly coming for the real uh, purpose of worship and glorifying God. And so that's what this sermon is technically about tonight. I want to start reading in Luke chapter 4, verse number 16. Luke chapter four verse number sixteen, the Bible says, "And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as his custom, uh, and, and as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up for to read. And there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Esaias. Now that's Isaiah." And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And he closed the book. And he gave it again to the minister and sat down. And the eyes of all them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began to say unto them, This day is the scripture fulfilled in your ears. And all bare him witness and wondered at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? He said unto them, Ye will surely say unto me this proverb, Physician, heal thyself whatsoever we have heard done in Capernaum, do also here in thy country. And he said, Verily I say unto you, No prophet is accepted in his own country. But I tell you of a truth, Many widows were in Israel in the days of Elias when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, when great famine was throughout all the land. But unto none of them was Elias sent, save unto uh, Sarepta, a city in Sidon unto a widow, or unto a woman that was a widow. And many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elisha, or that's Elisha the prophet. And none of them was cleansed, saving Naaman the Syrian. And all they in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath and rose up and thrust him out of the city and led him unto the brow of the hill whereon their city was built, that they might cast him down headlong. But he, passing through the midst of them, went his way and came down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and taught them on the Sabbath day. And they were astonished at his doctrine, for his word was with power. Heavenly Father, we come to you now and we ask that you bless this time. Lord, it won't be long, I don't believe, but I do believe that when you are involved in this sermon, it can be effective and it can be powerful. So Lord, that's what I'm asking now. I ask this in your son's precious name. Amen. Now, earlier this week, I had somebody come up to me, and they were mentioning that they knew of a person who was wanting to get some counsel from me. And I don't know why anybody would want to take counsel from me, but uh, uh, I, I began to kind of just ask what the situation was, and they began to tell me a little bit about the person and about what was going on in their life. And I kind of just threw my hands up in the air, and I say, I really don't know what to tell that person. You see, the problem was that, that I had surmised was that this person really hadn't been living a Christian-style life. Now, they know completely of God, and they know all about the Lord, but heretofore, they've not committed their life to doing the things which are contained within the Holy Scriptures. And I kind of just threw my hands up in the air, and I, I, I said, uh, What can I tell someone? You know, what I've learned in my life is when my life mirrors what's in this book, I'm very happy. And while there may be uh, mountains and valleys in those times, I still can find peace and contentment because my life aligns with the Word of God. But you know what I've also noticed? When my life does not quite mirror. What I know for a fact God wants me to do, how God wants me to behave, the man that God wants me to be, the father that God wants me to be. You know what I've noticed? My life is hard. It's hard emotionally. Physically, I'm drained. And spiritually, I feel empty. You know what? Why would somebody with a complete and whole knowledge of God... His character, and the Holy Scriptures, why would somebody just deny the Word of God? Well, there's a lot of reasons. But you know what I've learned? There's a lot of excuses as well. Tonight, I, to look at, I want to take a look at this. Denying the Word, five excuses, and three reasons. Five excuses. You say that—that's a one-eight-point sermon. We're going to be here forever. No, we'll get through them. Uh, it'll be fine. I want to take a look at rejecting the word of God. Now, I want to—I want to set the scene for you, though. What drew my eye to this particular passage of scripture is Jesus Christ, as his custom was, goes into the synagogue. And I do think that the minister that day was very wise that he chose Jesus to preach that sermon. And, and what they did is they delivered unto Jesus the book of Isaiah. Now, what, what, what is so amazing here is there's this moment in time where the word intersects. And what I mean by that is, as pastors spoke this morning, John chapter 1 In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. We find out later in John chapter 1 that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So Jesus, and we know this if you've studied your Bible at all, Jesus is the actual Word of God. And we'll refer to Him in this instance as the living Word of God. But here... They deliver unto Him the written Word of God. And I am so perplexed at the intersection of the living Word and the written Word. This is the portrait of perfect preaching, if you will. The preacher's perfect. the 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 word is perfect the the written word is perfect and you have jesus standing up and jesus delivering the passage of his own selection what i find unique is nobody told jesus what to read they handed him the book and they say you find it and jesus turns to a portion of scripture Quite similar to how we have done tonight, turning to a portion of Scripture and reading the specific passage of Scripture that we'll be preaching about. And Jesus reads Isaiah chapter number 61, and the written Word is being spoken by the living Word. Could you imagine the magnitude of this moment? Now, here's my thought on this entire situation Jesus being the living Word, He is the Word of God exemplified in flesh, and the Word of God, which is the written Word, is God's character and God's personality and His will for every Christian's life, completely summed up in book form. You've got the living Word preaching the written Word. It would seem to me like that would be a perfect time for revival to break out. I mean, there's absolutely nothing to taint the service. Jesus is perfect. The Word is perfect. But yet, when you read on down through a passage, it ends with people trying to kill Jesus. Why wouldn't they accept the Word? Why wouldn't they accept Jesus as the living word? And why wouldn't they accept Isaiah as God's written word? What was it that that tainted their idea or, or tainted their perspective on the matter? What was it that forced them away as opposed to drawing them in? Well, first of all, this was one of their excuses the speaker. The speaker, verse number 16, I want to show you this. Luke chapter 4, verse number 16. Now, this is speaking of Jesus. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up for to read. Now, this is one of the most commonly used excuses as to why people deny the word of God in their own life. They say, well, it's the preacher's fault. I want to point out to you. There has never been and never will be anyone more qualified to preach the Word of God than Jesus Christ himself. Jesus was there at the inspiration for the prophet Isaiah. It was Jesus who was infusing him with the words to write... David put it like this, The Spirit of God was in my tongue as he recorded the Word of God. And Jesus would have been there overseeing Isaiah's hand as every stroke was marked down. Jesus would have had complete knowledge about the context and the historical background and the emotions that Isaiah was feeling and the plans that Isaiah was broadcasting. Jesus, more than any commentary, sorry, Matthew Henry, sorry, Wycliffe, sorry, John Wesley, none of you men, as smart as you may have been, none of you understood the Bible like Jesus himself. And yet these people reject him as a speaker. What an excuse that is. That's an easy cop-out, isn't it? People come to church and they say, well, I'm just not getting anything out of Brother Andrew's sermons anymore. I'm just not getting anything out of preachers' sermons anymore. And that's a cop out. See, the truth be told, if you believe that you're in a place where the speaker is not qualified, it's your fault for sitting under a false prophet. The Bible warns you, and it's your own personal uh, idea uh, or, or suggestion, but the Bible says beware of wolves in sheep's clothing. If someone comes to spoil you through philosophy or traditions of men or the rudiments of the world, it's your duty to get out of town. So for you to come to church and admit or or suggest that the speakers are not qualified is more an indictment of your spiritual discernment than it is the speaker's uh, holiness. If you feel as if the pastors of this church are not qualified, what are you doing here? I don't I don't foresee now, I, I don't have uh, the ability to see in the future, but I don't see any drastic changes happening in the future. So if it is the speaker that is your excuse, I would suggest to you that's probably not going to change anytime soon. That's the first excuse. What I've noticed is people treat preachers like movies. They criticize the plot, which would be the sermon material. They criticize the preacher's performance, which would be the actor's ability to uh, act out his, his uh, assignment there. It's not your job to be a movie critic. It's your job to sit there and allow the Word of God to permeate your life. Oh, we ought not be movie critics. We ought to be open to what the man of God has to say. In fact, First Corinthians chapter 3 there was this argument that happened that some people enjoyed Paul's preaching and his tutelage more than Apollos'. And they said, one of them would say, no, I prefer Paul. I am of Paul's type of preaching. Another person would say, no, I am of Paulus'. And in fact, you know what the Bible calls that? A carnal mindset. In fact, the Bible goes on to say, for while one saith, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Paulus, are ye not carnal? Uh, Saying or suggesting that I am more qualified to preach the Word of God or that pastor is more qualified to preach the Word of God is admission of ignorance when it comes to the Bible. You see, it is not me that speaks tonight. It is me proclaiming the truths of God's Word. And if I ever step outside the boundaries of the truths of God's Word, I'm infringing upon something that I ought not be doing. I ought to stay within the confines of this book. And when I uh, waver from that, it is your uh, spiritual uh, uh, ability to say, well, this isn't heading the direction that I want. So the speaker is really just more of a cop-out than it is a true reason. Secondly, not only the speaker, the source. Verse number 17, For there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written. Now, unfortunately, this is what some people will do. They'll come to church and they'll say this. Well, you know, it wasn't necessarily the preacher. I I admire him trying, but he just picked a hard portion of Scripture this morning. Something that just was hard for me to understand. Uh, And and I'm I'm recalling a sermon one time right now in my mind, and I won't mention it for the sake of... That we're in a public venue, but one preacher just decided to get up and uh, talk about how Moses's wife had called him a bloody man. And if you want to, if you want to do a little research into the context of that, it's a pretty rough little deal. And uh, and I was kind of thinking, man, this is a strange passage of scripture to preach out of. But you know what the Bible says? All Scripture is given by inspiration of God, which truly means God breathed. And it goes on to say that all Scripture is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness. Now, I take that to mean that there is not one portion of Scripture that is any more valid or any more ineffective or effective than another passage of Scripture. But what we do so often is we just tune it out when it's not a, a, a story about Jonah. And for those people that like the deep diggers of preaching, you know, the people that just find the profound truths and you go home and say, I've never seen that before. You know what i noticed? If, if you go home often saying, I've never seen that before, probably the preacher saying a lot of things that weren't in there before because this is an elementary level book and, and if you're getting new nuggets of deep treasure wisdom about this mountain being higher and the water running down and the valley filling let's be easy let's understand that the word of God is simple and it's profound at the same time but for those people that say well pastor picked a difficult portion of scripture something I couldn't understand for every one of those there's one of these well preacher kind of Went the easy route this morning. He went to John 3. Like, who couldn't preach, preach Nicodemus, right? Who couldn't preach John 3.16? It seems like every time I go to church, preachers preaching from a, a Sunday school lesson type sermon, you know, like the Jonah's and the Daniels and the Davids. It just, I don't feel any depth. It is not our job to criticize or critique what maybe the man of God has been given from God It's our job to open up our hearts and, like the psalmist says, search me, O God, and try me and see if there be any wicked way in me. Whether it's a Sunday school sermon or the most profound deep sermon about the end times, you ought to search your life because the source is inspired by God. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. The Bible says, For this cause also we thank God without ceasing, because when ye received the word of God which ye heard of us, ye received it not as the word of men, but as in truth the very word of God which effectually worketh in you that believe. If you believe tonight that this is God's word, any time this book's open, it ought to draw your attention. And if you go to... You know, talk about excuses. Well, as soon as Preacher said the book of the Revelation, I was just out. I I just realized that was above my pay grade. Don't be that person. This source is profound. It is God's will and life and being wrapped up in 66 books of the Bible. This, what I hold in my hands, is by far the greatest treasure that men have. It's not our science. It's not that our cars can parallel park. It's not any of these things. It's that God gave us a remnant of His being in pages that we can understand. Some people will use the excuse, well, it's the speaker. Some will use the excuse, it's the source. Others will say it's the strength. Verse 14. A lot of people will say this. Well, I just didn't feel that preacher was all there this morning. I just... Maybe he didn't get a lot of sleep, or, or maybe he was not feeling well. I just don't feel like, you know, maybe he had thought that one all the way through. Verse number 14, these people here could have used that as an excuse, but they would have been absolutely foolish in doing so. The Bible says in verse 14, And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit into Galilee. Now, he's returning, Luke chapter 4, the very beginning of the chapter. He is driven by the Spirit of God into the wilderness. He faces the temptation of Satan himself and was triumphant in all three of the temptations that Satan laid before him. Now we have a passage of Scripture saying that Jesus is returning and the power of the Spirit of God. And the very next verse we find him going to his hometown... And people rejecting his message. If they rejected him, it wasn't because the strength of the message was not there. The Bible tells us that preaching has always been assisted by the Holy Spirit of God. Luke chapter 2 is the day of Pentecost, and Peter stands up and preaches... And for the first time, the Holy Spirit of God overtook everybody in the crowd. It was in the very words that Peter was preaching. And the Bible says that day about 3,000 souls were added unto them. Acts chapter 13, the first, very, the first missionary calling of Paul and Barnabas, the Spirit of God was the one that drove them because they would be preaching into foreign lands. And I want you to know this. That there cannot be a preacher who is effective and preach without the Spirit of God in his life. Preaching without the Spirit is the same as preaching without power. It's very similar to having a vehicle and not putting any gas in it. The potential is there, but the power is completely gone. And if you feel as if your preachers are not Spirit-filled, you do not feel that they are qualified to be pastors or preachers. Preachers ought to be Spirit-filled men. Men who seek the Spirit's direction in not only what they preach, but how they preach it. And the generosity and the graciousness and the caring, loving heart that they preach it with. The Spirit of God ought to permeate every single word of my uh, sermon. It ought to permeate every thought in my preparation. It ought to consume me. I ought to be willing to say, if this is not what you once said, Spirit of God, move me in the direction that I ought to speak. Lord, if this is not the subject that you want me to speak on, Spirit of God, move me in the way that I can effectively speak to the hearts of men this morning. And while there are some men each and every week that take the pulpit, without requesting that the Spirit of God be in their sermon, and without requesting that the Spirit of God do something in their own lives first, so that way they can see it done in somebody else's life, I do not believe that that happens at this church. And I believe that my goal and my desire is not that I would stand up and speak. My goal is that the Holy Spirit of God would so move my heart that I would preach with a tear in my eye and power in my heart and power in my lungs and just a, a care for the world in its lost and dying condition. And that ought to be my prayer. I don't talk fast in real life. You know the reason I talk fast up here is because I feel a burn in my heart to get the message of the gospel out to this lost and dying world. It's the Spirit of God. And these people could have said, well, the the message was, I just didn't feel the power. But unfortunately, that was a terrible excuse because Jesus had plenty of power in his preaching. The fourth excuse a lot of people will use is the style of preaching. Now, just from what I've seen over the years, I've heard, I would say, hundreds of preachers. Maybe you've not had the opportunity to hear that many, but I have. And I've characterized these preachers into what I believe are pretty effective categories. Now, some of these preachers can share several traits within the categories, but I have seen the ripper. The ripper. Now, that's the guy that gets up here and just turns it on, and from the moment that somebody lets him out the gate, he never takes... Any oxygen into his lungs, just a, a constant, just never gives you a break. Just, and uh, that, that's the whole time, man. That's the ripper. I've seen the weeper, the guy who preaches with a with a tear in his eye this morning. I'm concerned for this church. And it almost seems for 60 minutes they have a tear in their eye, and you're having trouble even clearly understanding what's coming out of their mouth because they're fighting back tears. And now I'm not making fun of any of these things. I want to be very clear. These are men of God. As long as they're preaching from the Word of God and they're filled with the Spirit of God, you can be anything you want to be as long as it's motivated by a genuine heart. There's the ripper. There's the weeper. There's the teacher. I've seen in my ministry guys that I wouldn't necessarily classify as preachers. The word preach means to proclaim as a trumpet, lift up your voice. And and some guys don't necessarily do that. So they like to dig into the deep meat of the Bible and they'll teach their congregation. And I've noticed that a lot of missionaries are this. Not necessarily because they're not good preachers, but you can't just go to Africa and start ripping people's faces off, telling them to get right with Jesus. Well, they have no clue who Jesus is. They're going to be the ones ripping into you if that happens. There's the ripper, there's the weeper, there's the teacher, there's the storyteller. Now, this guy is usually a good preacher for teenagers. Because for about 90% of his sermon, he he talks nothing about the Bible. He, he doesn't really even speak of the Bible too much, but he'll give stories, and I can think of several guys in my mind right now uh, who have great ability to tell stories. Uh, I'm not uh, indicting anybody here or trying to bash anybody, but if you've ever heard Dr. David Gibbs preach, the the attorney, my friend, the whole thing he does, he starts telling you a story, and he treats you like the jury, and you're just clinging on to every word he's saying. and. He tells stories about monkeys eating people's fingers. He tells stories about horses and him getting trapped in trailers, and and the whole, nearly the whole sermon is, is a story. And then at the very end, he redirects it and is like, and Jesus holds that rope, and you just, oh my, and uh, it just is convicting. And but he's a storyteller. There's the comedian. Now I've also seen guys preach, and these guys are usually really good with youth as well, is because they're just funny. They can I, I know one preacher who his dream in life was to be a stand-up comedian, and God called him to the ministry, so now he's a stand-up comedian when he preaches. And uh, he's a good preacher, but he, he just is funny, and people draw to his personality, and, and there's finally the intellectual. I don't know if y'all remember Brother Bates. Dr. Ken Bates came to our church. Now, this guy is literally a rocket or a a, a nuclear scientist. Uh, Yeah, a nuclear engineer. That's, That's what he did for the government for many, many years. And Dr. Ken Bates came to our church. Is it Ken Bates? Is that right? Ken Bates came to our church. I remember sitting up there in the balcony right there in the second row, I was sitting with my family, and Dr. Ken Bates on Sunday morning started talking about the hammer of God smiting the people of God, and I was lost in his beautiful words, and I just wanted to hit the altar because I knew what he was saying was right, even though I didn't understand any of it, and uh, uh, there's the intellectual. But here's an excuse people will use. Yeah, preacher's just not really my style. some people say, I like a ripper better than I like, you know, the, the funny guy. Or some people say, I like a guy that can make me laugh or let me draw into the stories. You know what? It ought not be about the preacher, his style or his ability or his approach to preaching. It ought to be that if he opens this book, whether he preaches it with a tear in his eye, a smile on his face, or bloody knuckles from hitting the pulpit, you ought to be willing to hear what he has to say. Billy Sunday said the backslider likes preaching that wouldn't hit the side of a house, while the real disciple is delighted with truth that brings him to his knees. The Truth of the matter is, preaching is a little bit foolish. I preach foolish, most of the time I get a little red-faced. Uh, preacher's got all these funny sayings from the woods in Tennessee. Been baptized so many times. The tadpoles are familiar with your social security number. And he's got all these little funny quips. And, uh, and all this is great. But at the end of the day, the Bible says, for the, power, uh, for the preaching of the cross is foolishness unto the world. But unto us who are saved, it is the power of God. Preaching's a little bit foolish. And everybody has their own style. But we ought to be mature enough as Christians that whether it's me yelling, whether it's preacher being funny, whether it's Brother Marshall expounding on the deep truths of the Word of God, it ought to be your diligent obligation to understand what is being spoken and not say, well, this just isn't my type of preacher. No, that's an excuse. That's a cop-out, a style. Finally, this is the fifth excuse. The subject. Now Jesus here is speaking of his the commencement of his ministry. He is speaking about what his ministry would contain and how it would apply to those that are around. And, and uh, all of these people are at the synagogue. And this is what you must notice. This is the people who are seeking godly things. These people aren't the sinners. Jesus preached to many of them, but that is not this venue. Jesus is preaching to the refined religious person. The person who knows the Word of God and is genuinely trying to live out the Word of God. And yet they were so enraged about what he was saying. Here's an excuse that people will use. You know, I just don't believe that sermon was really addressed to me this morning. I think it was kind of speaking to another crowd, maybe someone who deals with alcohol or someone who deals with pornography or some of the darker sins. But, you know, I listened the whole time. It just didn't really speak to me. And we kind of have this mindset that preacher was preaching to the choir. Meaning, I find it comical. If I ever want to get an amen, you know what I do? Preach on homosexuality. Because, boy, everybody's a go- Oh, yeah, preacher, you just start ripping there. You're gonna, we're going to put you in jail for preaching God's Word. But when certain things are spoken about that may more directly impact our life, we kind of just get a little silent. And our head kind of goes down and we avoid looking at the preacher in the face. And you know what I've learned in my ministry is, that's kind of like telling a bulldog, sick them. When everybody gets real quiet, what you don't understand is when I start getting on your pet sin, you ought to be the loudest person in here. It's kind of like, you know, reverse psychology. I say, for all you folks who aren't telling them, there ought to be 12 men just saying, preach them, preach And then I just stop talking about it. Because obviously nobody has a problem if there's that much noise being made. Truth be told, you've got to understand, we cannot come to church with this mindset, well, preacher's really not addressing me this morning. No, if you're in this congregation, you are the perfect candidate to be spoken to. Even Paul, the Apostle Paul said... I find in me no good thing. I try to do certain things and I realize those are the things that I can't do. And the things that I don't want to do, those are the things that I do. There is no good thing in my flesh. That's what Paul says. I believe that the Apostle Paul were in our church this evening, he'd be the first guy to listen to what the Word of God was preaching, preached about. He'd be the first guy at the altar, Understanding that he's far from a perfect individual, he's just someone being led by grace into the depth of the truths of the Word of God. There's subjects. Even the hymn hymn writer said, "Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love." We ought to ask the Lord to take our heart, O oh, take and seal it, seal it for Thy courts above. Now, those are five cop outs. They're five excuses. But I want to share with you the three real reasons why people deny the truth of the Word of God. First of all, because it's no longer special. Because it's lost the uniqueness of it. Look at verse number 24. I, I have to be very honest. I've never really understood this phrase. And I I began to meditate on it this week and try understanding within the context of Scripture what Jesus could be saying here. Verse 24. And he said, Verily I say unto you, No prophet is accepted in his own country. I I couldn't understand it. He, He goes on to use Elijah as an example. And he talks about... There were plenty of widows in Elijah's country that he could have gone to, but that's not the one that God chose. He chose the widow of Zarephath. And, and then he goes on to mention Elisha, and he says there were plenty of lepers there in Elisha's country, but he had uh, you go to uh, uh, the one in Naaman there. And I, and I just, for the life of me, couldn't understand it. And then verse 22, the answer is so plainly vivid to us. They all look at one another, and with one accord they say this. Is not this the son of Joseph? Isn't this the kid that grew up just down the street? I mean, I remember when I used to change his diapers, as so many people like to tell me. I remember when he came over. I remember uh, when he was playing games with all the rest of the kids. I remember. This is no special, man. I, I've seen this boy every day from the time he was knee-high to a grasshopper. This is no special thing. You know, I, I heard this phrase a long time. Familiarity. Familiarity. bring What did you say, Dad? That's pretty good, Dad. That's good. Because I forgot the second half. You belled me out. (laughs) Familiarity breeds contentment. It's this idea that when you're around something over and over and over again, it loses its beauty. It uses its luster. And I believe the hymn writer was trying to recall the beauty of the story of the gospel when it said, I love to tell the old, old story. Just because it's old doesn't mean it's not special. Just because it's old doesn't mean it doesn't have value. In fact, the older it gets, the more valuable it gets. In this case, I remember the very first time I told my wife I loved her. I remember the very first time I kissed my wife at the altar, obviously. (laughs) Amen, brother. (laughs) I remember a lot of the firsts of mine and my wife's relationship, our first date, what we did, some of the jokes that we spoke on it. But if you were to ask me some of the more recent dates, if you were to ask me about some of the more recent kisses or the more recent, Honey, I love you, wouldn't be quite as special. What we have to understand is what we have is valuable. The Word of God... (laughs) I find it comical that Peter said, I was on the Mount of Transfiguration. I was there, man. And yet we have a more sure word of prophecy. Peter looks at us with envy and says, I spent personal time with Jesus, and yet I look at what you're going to have in a canon of the Bible, and I look, you see the broad picture of everything. Jesus had to tell us in tidbits the story. You have a story of the beginning and the end, Peter said. Man, but we just, it's no longer special. We come to church, I I find it humorous that a new preacher comes in and everybody hits the altar. In fact, he'll preach the same sermon that I preached last week. And yet nobody hit the altar. A prophet's not accepted in his own country because it's no longer special. People get this idea that the grass is always greener down the road. And if I would just have, you know, if, if Pastor Joe Arthur was here in, in Joshua, I'd probably go to his church. You know what you'd find real quick? Pastor Joe Arthur would get on your nerves. Because we get so content, no matter how valuable this book is. What some of us need to do is we we need to realize that the reason the Word of God is not effectively working in our hearts like it used to is not the preacher's fault. It's not the power of the Word of God's fault, but it is our own personal investment in the truths that are being spoken about. It's no longer special. Secondly, it's no longer sharp. The Bible clearly communicates that the Word of God is sharp, it's powerful, it's quick, it's effective, it's alive, it's moving, piercing even to the dividing asunder of joints and marrow and of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. The Word of God is effective, it's sharp. You know why it's sharp? Is because it cuts out all the gray area. The Word of God does not give you three options in most cases. It normally says there's either Belial's side or there's God's side. Like the Old Testament prophet said, how long halt ye between two opinions? Like Joshua said, this day me and my house, we're going to choose to serve the Lord, but you need to choose whom ye will serve. The Word of God divides, and it puts either you in the righteous category or the wicked category. It either puts you in in serving God or serving self. And the Word of God is sharp. But there are times in the Bible where people continuously removing the sharp prick of the Word of God hardens their heart. Remember, if you will, Pharaoh. Moses came to Pharaoh and was speaking the word of God to Pharaoh. Let my people go. The first time Pharaoh looks at him, I don't know this God you're talking about. I don't know who you are. What is all this going on? I'm not going to let the people go. And what does the Bible tell us happened? And God hardened his heart. Plague after plague after plague, Pharaoh said, I'm not going to let the people go. And Pharaoh hardened his heart. And then there were occasional times where Pharaoh did make a vow to Moses to do what Moses was asked. He said, okay, I'll let the people go. But when that happened, what what takes place? Uh, He he goes back on his word and his commitment to God, and he says, uh, he goes on to say, the Bible says that God hardened his heart. When's the last time that the word of God pricked your heart? that it spoke to you in a way that it wasn't speaking to others? When is the last time, look up here everybody, let's be a little bit more mature than this. When is the last time when God spoke directly to you in a sermon? You didn't take a shovel and throw it over your shoulder to your neighbor, but you realized that it was as if the preacher was in your front yard and he was speaking directly to you. It's no longer sharp for a lot of us. The Bible tells us that uh, the men stood before the Sanhedrin Council, and the Sanhedrin Council, when they had the Word of God preached to them, the Bible says they were cut to the heart. You know why people come to this altar broken? Is because the Word of God has pointed out to them something that does not agree with God. You don't come to this altar Pouring tears out of your eyes just because you want everybody to see it. You come to this altar because when the preacher was speaking, the word of God pricked your heart. It cut cut across to your heart, and it revealed to you that if there were a righteous side and a wicked side, you would not be standing on the side of God. The Word of God is no longer sharp to many of us. It's been years since many of us have even threatened this altar it's been years since any of us bowed a knee to God whether at your seat or whether at the altar it has been years since we felt a sermon tug on our heart and say it's talking to you sinner when's the last time the word of god's no longer special it's no longer sharp and the word of god sometimes and oftentimes is spurned As someone throws something against a brick wall and it bounces back, that's oftentimes how we receive the Word of God. I want you to take your Bibles to the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter number 36. I'm going to share this story with you, and this is amazing what goes on in this passage of Scripture and in another passage of Scripture of two examples of men, one who accepts the word of God and one who does not. Our, 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 our story here actually happens all the way back in 2 Kings. Many of you will remember the king Josiah. Josiah was one of the greatest kings in Israel's history. In fact, him and Asa and David and Solomon would have probably been the, the, the greatest kings in Israel's history. Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign in Jerusalem, the Bible says. Just a young boy, eight years old, 18 years into Josiah's reign, he decides after cleaning uh, his personal life, after trying to live uh, and walk in the ways of God, the Bible says, Josiah did that which was right in the eyes of God. And he did what was, he walked in the ways of his father David and turned not to the right hand, Neither to the left. Josiah was a great king and a great man of God. Eighteen years into his reign, Josiah gets the idea. He's about 25 or 26 years old. And he decides he's going to rebuild or re... uh, Not necessarily rebuild, but... uh, uh, What did you do to your kitchen? Remodel. There we go. Kind of like fix it up. He decides to fix up the temple. And so he commissions a team. He gets Hilkiah, uh, the high priest, to help him out with it. They collect an offering. They get all the the contractors, if you'll allow me to use a modern-day term. They get everybody in their positions, everybody working. And as they're cleaning out the temple and fixing up the temple and repairing the temple, someone comes to Hilkiah and says, Hilkiah, we found a book of the law. And Hilkiah reads from and he realizes what he's found. They found the Word of God. That for the two reigns before uh, Josiah, the king simply didn't care. They didn't care what God said. They didn't care what uh, God would have wanted. And so in this time frame, the Word of God was lost. And now Hilkiah comes to Josiah, a man who the Bible only ever brags about. And Ilkiah reads the law of God to Josiah. You know what his reaction is? He says, Josiah, go read this to every person. And we will have sacrifice. And it may be that God will turn his anger from us for the great wickedness that we have done. Now, Josiah is a great king. He's a good guy. He's one of the guys that after a sermon I'd be sitting in the back just praying that others walk forward. But instead, Josiah says... We need to sacrifice. He then, after sacrifices, reinstalls the Passover there in 2 Kings chapter 22. It's an amazing story as Josiah listens to the Word of God and reacts to the Word of God and embraces what it has to say. Now, in your passage, Jeremiah, there's a king named Jehoiakim. Now, you may not know this, but Jehoiakim is the son of Josiah. Josiah, the king who embraced the word of God, and now Jehoiakim is an evil king. His brother was exceedingly wicked and he was killed. And now uh, Jehoiakim stands in line to be the king. And, And the Bible tells us that God gives Jeremiah a commission to write down God's word. God tells Jeremiah exactly what to write down, and he writes it down. There's a man that Jeremiah has delivered this word of God to the, the temple there. His name is Baruch. Baruch goes into the temple and begins to proclaim the things that God has written down by Jeremiah's hand. It's amazing as people hear this, they begin to embrace it and react in the way that people ought to react to God's word. But unfortunately, some people over here that don't like the message. The Bible tells us they're princes. And it kind of goes up this this, uh, hierarchy steps, if you will. And finally, there's a group of princes who have denied the truth of the Word of God. In fact, the Bible clearly says they're concerned about what they've heard. Now, I want to draw your attention to verse number 20. We'll find ourselves at the conclusion of the story. This is the princes going in to the king. And they went into the king into the court, but they laid up the roll in the chamber of Elishama the scribe, and told all the words in the ears of the king. So the king sent Jehudi. Now that's a pretty rough name. That guy don't know what's going on. That's terrible. The king sent Jehudi to fetch the roll. That's the word of God that was pinned by Jeremiah's hand, and he took it out of Elishama the scribe's chamber. And Jehudi read it in the ears of the king, and in the ears of all the princes which stood beside the king. Now the king sat in the winter house in the ninth month, and there was a fire on the hearth burning before him. Notice this. This is Josiah's son. King Josiah, the one who heard God's law and reacted and embraced it. Now Jehoiakim. And it came to pass that when Jehoiada had read three or four leaves, he cut it with the penknife and cast it into the fire that was on the hearth until all the roll was consumed in the fire that was on the hearth. Yet they were not afraid, nor rent their garments, neither the king nor any of his servants that heard all of the words. You have Two ways that you can accept or reject the Word of God. There is no middle ground. You understand the Bible splits it right down the middle. You're either going to be denied a Josiah or a Jehoiakim. Someone who says, no matter how good I think I am, God's Word always points out my flaws. Or you can be Jehoiakim and turn a deaf ear and say, Now, I've got it all figured out. I don't need the Word of God. And if you want to study the rest of the passage, you're more than welcome to. What goes on is God removes Jehoiakim from the throne because of his arrogancy and his pride. He says, If you're going to be my king and you're going to be the king of my people and you're not even going to listen to the Word that I write down for you, how are you going to serve me? And he literally removes him from the throne. There's only two ways to receive God's Word either accept it with a fully open heart, embracing every truth that God has, even the difficult ones, or you reject every jot and every tittle of it. Now, if you have a vehicle tonight, how many of you enjoy when you go outside of your house and you start that vehicle up or you try to crank it and it goes click, 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 click? Or you walk out there and you've got an issue. You can see there's a puddle of some black stuff underneath the engine of your car and you realize this is not a good sign. Now, my first reaction at this point is not to get under there and start digging around because I'm probably going to make matters worse if I do much digging. I'm going to try taking something out. I'll put it back and I'll have four more bolts than I ever thought I had in there. That's just me. Maybe you're good with mechanical stuff. I hope you are. But not me. So what I would do is I'd take it to a mechanic. No matter what the issue was, I could probably figure out something to do with the battery. I could figure out if it doesn't have gas, because I'm good like that. But as far as really being able to fix it, I don't have the ability. So what I would do is I'd take it to a mechanic. And I don't know about you, but I would expect that mechanic to fix my vehicle. Now, if if in two weeks the mechanic calls me and says, hey, come on in. So I come in expecting for him to hand me a bill and the keys to my car, and he says, just so you know, we fixed some other issues. Uh, We noticed that your air pressure was a little low. We noticed that it had been a while since you changed oil. We fixed that. But the oil leak and the clankety-clank sound, we couldn't really figure that out. But we want you to leave it with us. Say, okay, maybe they didn't have enough time, right? Maybe they just, maybe they didn't have enough time, and they said, we're going to bill you for the things that have already happened, and then we'll we'll give you a call in a couple more weeks. And a couple more weeks pass by, and I get a call. and say, come on in. I go in, and I say, hey, did you get my car done? they say, well, we found another issue. Uh, the headliner in your vehicle was kind of torn and falling out. We glued that back up. But the clankety-clank and, uh, and the other things that are wrong, not really... Couldn't really fix that. But we want you to leave it with us just a little bit longer. We we're pretty busy, but we'll take a look at it again. And so I say, okay, I don't have another option because I can't fix it, so I walk home because I don't have a vehicle. So his the way story goes. In two more weeks, I get a call, and they say, Brother Andrew, we got your car? Because everybody in the community refers to me as Brother Andrew, obviously. Uh, Andrew, we got your car. Uh, uh, come on in, take a look at your car, see what you think. I come in, and I say, man, what'd you, did you, you figured it out? Well, not so much. In fact, this time we fixed all the minor stuff that we can fix, but we really have no idea what's wrong with your car, but we want you to leave it with us. How many times should I leave it with them and nothing be fixed until I figure out another solution? Well, I would say I would become a little foolish after paying bill after bill after bill and not actually seeing any progress. Why do you come to church? Has the mechanic fixed anything in your life lately? Or are you a little bit foolish in your endeavor to come to church all the time and never receive anything? Look, I'm not saying I have all the answers. I am saying that this book does. And if you will embrace its message and you will just throw your hands up and say, God... I am your child, and you gave me a guidebook for living, and I'm going to, with every beat of my heart and every fiber in my being, I'm going to do what your word asked me to do. If I will do that, God, I just want you, you to put your hands all over my life. God, I want you to be involved. God, I want you to be my father. I want you to be my friend. I want you to be my, my high tower, my strength. God, I just want you to keep all of your promises if I try keeping all of your commandments. That person is someone who gets something out of preaching. That person is the one that gets something when they do their personal devotions. That person is the one who says, I don't want to be a Christian. I want to be a disciple. When's the last time that God spoke to your heart in a sermon? Look, if if the mechanics at this place aren't getting it done, go find a better shop. I don't want you to waste away as a Christian in an anorexic type life where you you can't get any food, and you're always starving for another morsel of spiritual bread, and yet every time you go home malnourished. That's not the goal of this church. And if you are at that point in this church, I don't want you to suffer any longer. But if you feel with every fiber of your being that the men at this church preach God's word, love God's word, love God's spirit and request for his presence in their sermon, if you feel that, well, based on my study, I don't really see any way you couldn't get out of something out of preaching.